What are you afraid of? Goblins? Demons? Anybody afraid of demons? Ghosts? What are you afraid of? Or who are you afraid of? I mean, think about it. Who are you afraid of? God. God. We got the Sunday school answer. Good job. (laughs) Are you afraid that uh, your boss might find out what you do with your time at work? For those of you that are married, are you afraid that he might find out or that she might know? What about your image, your self-image? Are you afraid of what people think of you? What, what we fear, we worship. What we fear, we worship. Do you fear, fear God? I hope you do. Not in the sense, not in the same way that you would fear a ghost or a goblin. But is God your priority? The one whom you please? Or are you living in fear? And I want to I say this, and I want, you to, I want you to hear me. Fear drives us. How we make decisions, what we do with our time, where we go in life, what we do at work, how we interact with our, the people that are closest to us, with our church family or with our spouses or with our kids and our marriages. What, fear drives us. And for us as adults, often it's very subtle. Fear is very, a very subtle kind of thing in our lives. For kids, fear is very like out in the open, right? Like my, my four-year-old Eden, she is afraid of the dark. And uh, you will know it if you ever turn. The, and she's also afraid of the door being closed and latched. There is no door that should ever be closed and latched in her, in her world. All right? And occasionally, those two things come together for this perfect storm of fear in her life. It happens on occasion where the lights will be off for one reason or another and a door is shut and latched and this wave of panic and fear like just rushes through her and she goes crazy, right? Um, this happened a couple of weeks ago and, and I was in the room with her and the door was closed, or it latched and I'm the one that did it. I'll take full blame. I closed the door. And she's freaking out, and, I'm, and I grab her by the shoulders, and I'm like, Eden, look at me. Well, she can't look at me. <laughs> but I think I probably said it anyway. Eden, I'm here. Look, I'm here. I'm with you. I'm here. Now, see, for kids, it's very out in the open. We can clearly see what kids are afraid of. For us, as adults, we learn how to hide our fears. We learn how to layer other things on top of our fears so, so they come across like maybe even positive motives, yet we're really just driven by fear. 
It dominates our individual lives from the public sphere to what we do out with our friends, the way that we spend our time, to our work, to often our families, our marriages, and often even within the church, we do things not driven by something uh, that's, that's beautiful and holy, but we do things and we say things and we interact in ways driven by fear. So with that said, we're diving into Mark chapter 6 today, starting in verse 45, and, and we are going to watch this as Jesus confronts fear. And I think uh, if, you, if, if, you, if you are a human being and you have a pulse, you might want to check, just see if you're alive, you probably need to listen up and, and allow Christ to speak to you this morning regarding your own fears that you have in your life. So if you're there in your Bibles, if you need a Bible, by the way, raise your hand. Somebody in the back can grab a Bible for you. Um, Mark chapter 6, um, starting in verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out in the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. And immediately he said to them, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Let's pray as we begin. God, open up our eyes, our hearts, our minds to the words that have been read. We believe that this is your word to us. This is your message to us. And God, I am nothing more than a vessel of service to be poured out this morning. So I ask that your words will be heard today, not mine. God, I pray that this, this word will bring joy to, to believers to those that are struggling with fear. God, I pray that for those here that are not Christians, that this will bring uh, faith to them, that they will understand the beauty of Christ and that you will do a work in hearts this morning. Perform the greatest miracle of all in our midst and that is a changed life. Transform us in Jesus' name. Amen. As we, as we read this text, we read through this story, Jesus walking on the water, some crazy stuff. The most, the most shocking thing, as I read it, and I think probably you would agree, as we read through this text, the most shocking thing about it is not the fact that Jesus is walking on water. I mean, that's shocking. 
It would have been shocking enough if he would have swam out to where they are. But he's walking across the water, all right? Not walking on a sandbar, all right? It, it, then it just frees over all of a sudden. Like he's walking on the, that's pretty shocking, all right? But I don't think that shocks us uh, the most in this, in this story. That's shocking, but not, the storm is not, it's not shocking that a storm came up again. Um, it's th- the most shocking thing is not the fact that Jesus calmed the storm again. This is the second time we've seen this in Mark. As we read these verses, as we take in this story, the most shocking verses are verses 51 and 52. And I want to start there. So we're starting at the end today, all right? 51. He got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. They should be amazed. They should be astounded. Their teacher was just walking across the water. And again, they saw uh, not only that miracle, but then the miracle of the wind ceasing once again. Here's the shocker, 52. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Is that not shocking? These guys have seen so much. Is that not like unbelievably shocking? They've witnessed a, uh, Jesus heal multitudes. They've witnessed him heal a leper with a single touch. They've seen Jesus tell a paralytic to get up. And what happened? The guy got up and walked away. They've seen him uh, tell a man who had, who had a withered hand to stretch it out. And as he did, his hand was healed. They've already witnessed him calm one storm that they almost lost their lives in. They've, they've seen this uh, woman who's been bleeding for 12 years come up and grab the hem of his garment and immediately be healed. In the same way, they've seen Jesus touch the hand of a dead girl and she woke up. And then last week, we saw the loaves. We saw the bread being broken, taking uh, five loaves and, and feeding how many people? 5,000? And now, of course, he's just walked across the water, okay? And they're amazed. They're astounded. But their hearts are hardened. They don't, they, they, they're, they're just, it, they're, they're not getting it. Um, turn over a page to chapter 8. I want to I point something out to you. We saw last week you know, Jesus take five loaves and feed 5,000. In chapter 8, we see Jesus take seven loaves and now feed 4,000. So evidently, Jesus can take a little bit of bread and make it a lot of bit of bread and feed a lot of bit of people, all right? Now, if you were the disciples, and let's just say you were out on a boat with Jesus and you forgot the bread, all right? And you're getting hungry. The, your stomach's starting to growl at you. And you look around and you realize all you have is one loaf of bread. Would you be concerned? I mean, you have the the bread maker right here. Would you be concerned? I want to show you something. In chapter 8, the disciples are out on a boat. Verse 14, they forgot to bring the bread. They only had one loaf with them. 
verse 16, they began discussing with one another about the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five? Remember that? And we had a bunch of baskets left over. Then I broke seven. We had a bunch of baskets of bread left over after that. Do you not understand? And the way Mark is putting it here with Jesus walking on the water and he gets into the boat and the wind ceases, the way Mark says it is they didn't understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. I love the way the theologian John Gill puts it, and I completely agree with him. He says, for their heart was hardened, there was a great deal of blindness or stupidity in them. I think it's a great theological explanation for what's going on here. They're stupid, all right? They, they, they get it, or, or they, they see it, but they don't get it. They, they, they're amazed every time Jesus does a miracle, and they walk away confused every time. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? And what, what they don't get, and this is the point of the miracles. Why does Jesus do miracles, by the way? Backing up, why does he even do miracles? Is it just to amaze people? Just to astound people? If Jesus were to heal, miraculously heal you or someone you know, why? Just to amaze somebody or write a book about it or... Um, make your life better for the glory of God to draw people under him. And I would add to that specifically to show us who he is, to show us his identity. So you see the disciples, they're freaking out. They, they, they're, they're overwhelmed and they're gripped with fear and their hearts are hardened because they don't get who Jesus is. They don't understand who Jesus is. So Jesus, even in this miracle that we see happening, is trying to tell us something and trying to tell them something about who he is, about his identity. So I wanna go back now to the beginning of the story. I wanna walk through the story with you, walk through this miracle with you, and uh, not, not to amaze us, but so we can learn something of who, who Jesus is, so we can learn something about his, his identity. Verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up onto the mountain to pray. Now let's stop right there. Let me make this really clear. Um, without Jesus, there is fear. Without Jesus, we fear. Without Jesus, what? We fear. We fear man, number one. And we fear the spiritual, number two. Jesus here, what we see is he's surrounded by crowds. He is surrounded by people demanding things of him. 
please come with me, do this with me, stay with me, go there, heal me. And what he does regularly, we see this all throughout the New Testament, all throughout the Gospels. We see this in Gethsemane. Jesus pulls away from the will and the demands of people. And he focuses on the will of the Father. So this is subtly implied here. But what we see it is, is, is the same thing we see all throughout the Gospels, is that Jesus pulls away. He is not going to allow people, popular opinion, the will of you guys to determine what he does. He did not come to become a popular icon. He came with a mission. And so he's regularly them, pulling away from your desires, from the desires of the crowds, from the desires of the people, from, from, from their will, from their mission for him. He pulls away and he's submitting himself regularly over and over and over again to the will and the mission and the desires of the Father. Without Jesus, with, without him in our lives, transforming us and without his example, we are driven by the fear of man. And what that looks like is we are driven by the desires, the wills, and the thoughts of other people around us. Do you worry first and foremost of what other people think of you? Do you have their approval? Do you please them? Do you measure up to the standard that other people have set for you? What about your image? Do you fear people not seeing you and looking at you in the way that you want to be seen and looked at? And so unlike Jesus, you don't have time to pull away and to focus on the will and the mission of the Father because you are consumed with tweaking and perfecting your public image. And remember, what we fear is what we serve. What we fear is our God. The wills and the desires of other people can be our idol, our image, our self-image, what people think of us can be our idol and we are terrified that we might lose that. In your, in your job, is your identity tied up in what you do? For, ask, especially, especially dudes, ask somebody to tell them about, tell you about themselves. What's the first thing they're gonna tell you? What they do. Is your identity tied up in what you do? Is that who you are? or how much you make. Do you feel like you constantly have to apologize for the job that you work or for the little, little bit of money that you make? Is that where your identity is tied up? And look how fear then drives you through that, through every bit of the way that you do your job or think about your job or money or whatever. Or what about in your marriage, if you're married? Do you fear uh, the kind of vulnerability 
and openness that married life demands of you. If she really knew my heart, she would leave. If he really knew what I did, he wouldn't be with me. Do we fear that kind of vulnerability? For, for, for some of you, and I'm, I'm not even going to say this is the majority, um, maybe a very small minority of you, for some of you, you will choose to remain single because you're afraid of that kind of vulnerability. I do not know if I can be that naked in front of someone. I do not know if I can be known with that kind of intimacy. And so we, we do what? We cover up. We resist because of what? Fear. It's our image. It's who we are. It's what we're, what we're protecting. What, what we're worshiping. In, in church, the way that we do church together as a church family, is it possible that fear can drive, can drive us? If, if fear were a motivating factor in our church, right here, in our local church, when we come together for fellowship, when we interact with each other, your goal would be to please the people around you the people you're interacting with. Your goal would be to be seen in a certain way, which is most likely holier than you actually are. Driven by this fear of what someone else thinks of me. Or if, if we were driven by fear in this kind of way, um, we are having so many mic problems, aren't we? If we were driven by fear in that kind of way, when I preached, I would preach uh, to please you. I would preach so that you may come up to me afterward and say, hey, that was a great sermon. I'm coming back next week. If we were driven by fear. Do you see how fear can creep in how fear can subtly grip us and control us and we do things driven not by a desire to please God, we, pre, from preaching to fellowship, not, as a, not out of a desire to please God, but out of a desire to please other people. We cannot, uh, we cannot face man. We can't face people without a redeemer. We can't face man without having a savior. And here's why. If, if, if uh, you do not have a redeemer, then man and man's opinion of you, of your personality, of your image, whatever that is, becomes your redeemer. If you do not have a savior, if Christ is not your savior, then man becomes your savior. And so then we live enslaved to popular opinion. So number one, we fear man without Jesus. Number two, without Jesus, we fear the spiritual. Look at verse 49. 
But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. Now that word cried out right there in in the Greek is sort of this violent word that might be better translated screamed out. It signifies uh, this, this sort of deep and throaty yell. All right? So picture Jesus walking across the water. I want to get that in our minds. It's crazy. And when they see this, they think it's a ghost. So backing up, are they afraid of the storm? We don't really even know. It doesn't say that they're afraid of the storm. They were afraid of the storm before when we saw uh, the previous storm that Jesus calmed. At this point, they're just in a storm. And as we talked about a couple weeks ago, storms were very normal for fishermen on on the lake. So they're not necessarily freaking out because of the storm. They are afraid, not because of the storm, but because of Jesus. Jesus scares them. Listen, for those who don't know Jesus, for those who don't recognize him, who he is, he is horrifying. This idea of Jesus just being sort of my homeboy, Jesus, Jesus and I, we're, we're cool. I don't really, really know. The, the very presence of Jesus would horrify those who do not recognize him, who do not know him. And they see Jesus walking across the water and they are horrified, horrified by this. Because without Jesus, we fear the spiritual. What's out there? Hollywood then can take spiritual themes and really freak us out, can't they? Like we can watch like this demon movie and basically respond in the way that any godless person would respond and that's with fear. And we believe the story that Hollywood is telling us about how the de- demonic world works. Um, my, my dad, when The Exorcist came out back in the 70s, my dad had this like hippie roommate, right? And he went and saw The Exorcist. And my, my dad's told me that, uh, that after his roommate saw The Exorcist, um, he thought he was going crazy. Like he was absolutely horrified. And he thought that he was possessed. He thought he was going crazy. And he might have been. <laughs> Seriously. Because without Jesus, who knows what's out there? Who knows what's beyond this life? Who knows what's, what, what the spiritual world holds for us? Uh, when I was in high school, I read Hamlet. I say that almost like an apology. <laughs> I read, I'm sorry. I, I, I worked through a Shakespeare. Um, any Shakespeare fans? A couple of you? All right. So when I was in high school, I was reading Hamlet. It was required reading for my literature class. And, and it, I, I literally like worked through the book with the movie right here, okay? Like I would read about a chapter of the book or a scene or whatever. And then I would watch that on the movie, so I could like try to understand what in the world Shakespeare was saying. Really great story, by the way. I just wish he would have wrote it in a normal language, you know? <laughs> um, but in Hamlet, what's, what stuck out to me, I, I, and this has stuck with me ever since then, um, 
Hamlet's kind of going crazy with life. Uh, life is not good for him. And he's really considering suicide. And he says this really famous monologue. He says, to be or not to be? That's the question. And he essentially goes on, whether it's, it's better, I'm gonna, I'm gonna translate it for you. <laughs> whether it's, it's better <clears throat> to live, to face the slings and the arrows of life, or to die, to sleep. But then he goes on, he says, but to sleep, perchance to dream. Ah, there lies the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come? Do you see what he's saying? What Hamlet is essentially saying is, is man, like, to live really kind of sucks. I don't know if I want to go on. It's really hard. Um, and so to die seems better. Seems like a better choice. Oh man, to, to sleep, to be no more, he says. But then as he thinks about that, and as he considers that option, he's, he then follows it with like, but, but to, if I sl- to sleep and to dream, and what dreams may come? What's, what's out there? What might be beyond this life? And so then for Hamlet, he just decides to live. <laughs> I will live and face what I have to face. Without Jesus, the spiritual world um, freaks us out. We don't know. It's scary. What if? What if there's nothing there? How horrifying is that? Life beyond what we know, life beyond what we can touch and feel is horrifying to us. Kanye West. <laughs> Jesus walks. How can, you, how can you preach this and not refer to Kanye West? Amen. So Kanye West, in his one song about Jesus, by the way, you know, in, in Jesus Walks, he talks about how he's going to start rapping about Jesus and everybody in the club is going to be yelling Jesus Walks and stuff and he's never rapped about Jesus since, at least not to my knowledge. Like, what's up with that? So Kanye, in his one song about Jesus, halfway through it, the second half of his, his course, he says, I don't think there's nothing I can do, right, uh, do now to right my wrongs. I want to talk to God, but I'm afraid because we ain't spoken so long. John, I should have you rap that for me later. I just don't quite do it justice. So in Kanye's one song about Jesus, he admits that I want to talk to God, but I'm afraid. Like Jesus is cool, and I'm going to be singing He Walks, but when it comes down to it, in his hook, over and over, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. This, this idea of, of uh, facing God in our brokenness. How did, how did Adam 
respond? How did Adam and Eve respond? How did they respond to each other? Going back to the fear of man, they covered up, right? As soon as they fell, as soon as sin, brokenness entered into this world, Adam and Eve covered up. What if, what if they don't love me? What if he doesn't love me? And how did they respond with God? They hid and God came to them and he was like, hey, what's going on? And his word, uh, Adam's response in Genesis chapter three, verse 10, I heard you, he says, and I was afraid. Why should fallen, sinful, broken Adam be afraid in front of a righteous, holy, and just God? How can he? How, how can he stand before God and not have fear? How can I stand before the Father? I think of God's words to Moses on Mount Sinai. If you remember anything about the wilderness wandering, going back to the, to the story of Israel, and they're in the wilderness, and, and God is up on Mount Zion, or Mount Sinai. So God's on the mountain, and the people are where? For those of you that might remember this from about a year ago, we, people are down below. The people are on the ground. God up in the mountain, people down here. People can't go up to God in the mountain. Now God calls Moses to come on up. He's like, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you some protection here. You can actually come up the mountain into my presence and I won't kill you, I promise. So Moses in trust, he, he, he goes before God. Um, God. God says this to Moses. He says, go down and come up bringing Aaron with you. And he says this, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord lest he break out against them. God up in the mountain, people down here, he's like, all right, I'm gonna give you one more uh, ticket here. You can go get Aaron and Aaron can come up the mountain and be in my presence, but don't let the people come up here or I will crush them. I will break out against them. How can a broken, sinful people stand before a just, holy, and righteous God? All right. Let's move on. We, 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 we are driven by fear. Fear dominates every aspect of our lives from our work to our public sphere to our church uh, to the way that we could, could do church to our, our marriages, um, to our families, to our kids, to our grandkids, whatever. Fear dominates us. Fear drives us. Fear of man. Fear of the spiritual. The question is, how does Jesus solve this problem? What do we see about Jesus in this story that forever changes this issue of fear in our lives? It's not simply in the miracles that he does. It's not simply in the fact that he can break bread and feed a bunch of people or walk across water. That he can, that he can do, a, do something amazing in your life. It's, it's precisely in who Jesus is. So I want to go there. <clears throat> Verse 46. I'm going to tie my shoe if you don't mind. Verse 46. After he had taken leave of them, he went up on the, onto the mountain to pray. 
And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, and the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, it's about 3 a.m., he came to them. He came to them. So God up on Mount Sinai, the people down here below, the people cannot go up to God or they will be crushed. What we are seeing in Jesus, all right, we've got to begin to wrap our minds around the identity of Christ and the message of Christ and the good news of Christ. What we see in Jesus is that the God on the mountain came down. God saw you in your distress. He saw you in the midst of your storm, in your sin, in your fear, in your fighting against every bit of this world. And the God who we cannot approach in Jesus, what we see is that this God came down from the mountain into our storm and he has come to us. Now, verse 48 is the second weirdest thing in this passage. Actually, just, yeah, at the end of verse 48, and about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Look at this phrase. He meant to pass by them. Now, that's weird, all right? He meant to pass by them? Like, was he just sneaking by? (laughs) Wanted to beat him to the other side? Um. Which, by the way, he caught up to them. Does anybody realize that? Like, he saw them out there. They've been struggling to try to get to the other side all night. And he's caught up to them. Um, so is he just passing them by like, ah uh-huh. look at me. Is this his normal mode of transportation? Is he going to sneak around the back of the boat and jump on Andrew? Ah, scared you. Like, what is this? He meant to pass by? Now listen, we have to understand something about God and the way he's revealed himself to humanity. All throughout the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, all throughout the Old Testament, we see this image of God passing by his people. Going back to Mount Sinai even. Remember, back on Mount Sinai, there's Moses who comes up the mountain and he's with God up on the mountain. And Moses begs God, please, can I just get a glimpse? Can I get a glimpse of your glory? Can I get a glimpse of who you are? And so then God says in Exodus uh, chapter 33, he says, while my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft of a rock and I'll cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you'll see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And so this, this glory of God passes by and it's too much. And so God blinds, in some fashion, blinds Moses. And so he can't even see him passing by, but then he just sees sort of this after effect. Or check out Job 9. We have to go to Job 9. Um, if you want to turn there, if you, if you don't really know the Bible very well, don't worry about turning there. It's right in the center of the Bible. But Job chapter 9, I'm just going to read two verses. Job says this, Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? And that word trampled is the same word that's used for walk. Who alone has stretched out the heaven and walks across the waves? And then skipping down to verse 11, he says, Behold, 
he passes me by. But then Job says, I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. You see, what, what Job sensed, this glory of God passing by, what he sensed but did not perceive, what, what, Moses, uh, what, what Moses' eyes were made blind to as God passed by, this, this sight which humanity had never before seen, Jesus is passing by, he's trampling across the water, he passes by, and he then makes himself known. He calls out, take heart, it is I. It is I. And by the way, it's, it is I, two words, I am. This is God who's come down from the mountain, who's trampled the waves, who's pa- who passes by. But what Job couldn't see and what Moses couldn't see, Jesus is making known. And he's calling us out to, 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 to recognize him. I am. Here I am. And then his phrase right after that is, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. We don't fear with Jesus because Jesus is God. And he has looked at us and he has said, do not be afraid. There's no fear. He's come down from the mountain. He's entered into our storm. He's removed our, our, our coverings. The, 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 the Father sent the Son to shower us in mercy and, and grace. What is the mission that Jesus was on? Why was Jesus regularly pulling away from the wants and the desires of man to focus on the will of the Father? That mission was, was to redeem us. That mission was to go to the cross and take our sin upon him. Why now can God look at us and tell us, do not be afraid? Is it because of the good things we've done? Is it because of all the good that I am? No. It's because of what he did for us. He's covered us in his blood. He's completely forgiven us. And he looks at us. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. So therefore we can stand before man with no fear. We can enter into the public world, into our jobs, into our houses, into our marriages, to your school, into your relationships with no fear. In, in, in our work, in, in public, our identity is no longer found in what we do or what people think of our image, but our identity is now found completely in Christ who covers us, who makes us new. And we find our identity in him and there is no need to fear. In our marriage, we have received this word from God you are forgiven. You are forgiven. And so we can now be vulnerable. We can take the fig leaves off. We can trust. We can accept. 
in our church, Christ is, is, Christ is not something we do. Going back to the title of this series, it's all about Jesus. Christ is at the center. He's not at the front and then everything else kind of comes behind him. He's at the center of everything that we do. He's at the center of it all. As we have fellowship with one another, as we interact with, we, with one another, we're not trying to please each other. If we were, I mean, even this concept of confronting sin, this concept of discipline would never be in our conversations if we were just trying to please each other. But we're not, we're not pleasing each other. We're trying to please he who is at the center of our relationships. That's where we meet. It's what is my motivating factor in, in, in the sermons that I bring, in the way that I preach? Am I trying to please you? No. I can't try to please you. I try to please him who is at the center of everything. And you see how this then, it, it, it just melts all of the fear that we've allowed to build up in the way that we interact with each other, in the way that we do life. As we speak these same kind of words to one another, do not fear. It's amazing what these words can do for us. As we speak to a dying, lost, and hurting world, the message of Christ and we're able to say with, with boldness, do not fear. Don't fear. As we're able to, to embrace one another in intimate relationships. This is why as a church, we encourage you to not like leave and run away as soon as the service is over, but to interact with each other, to have people over to your home for dinner, to be together, to talk to each other, to be in a house community with each other. Why? Because we need to then take this, this model that Jesus has given us and, and not only allow it to minister to us and to transform us, but then to imitate who Christ is to one another. And to be able to speak to each other the, the words of Jesus. Do not fear. Do not fear. We can stand before God with no fear. We can come before the Father on the mountaintop and have complete confidence, complete boldness as we approach that throne because God has looked at us and he knows everything about you and because of the blood of Christ being poured on you and forgiving you, God's words is, do not fear. Do not fear. He has come to us in our dark room, the door being latched and we're freaking out, right? And he puts his hands on our shoulders and says, I'm here. Recognize me. Recognize me. I'm with you. Will you let Jesus pass by this morning? Or will you recognize him as he calls out to you? Will you recognize the voice of your Savior as he calls out? And will you embrace that? Will you 
trust Jesus Christ this morning. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the fact that in Jesus there is no fear. Not simply because Jesus has done really cool things. Not simply because we've seen a miracle happen. But we know that in Christ there is no fear because Jesus is God. And God, we we thank you for the fact that you have come down from the mountain. You have entered into our world so loving and kind to us that you would send your son. And God, as Jesus passes by this morning, as we sense his glory, as we sense his presence, who he is, may we not let that pa- let, let him pass by without recognizing it and turning to him in fullness and trust in him completely. If there is someone here, God, who has uh, been living apart from you, been living apart from Christ, I pray that you give them the gift of faith this morning that they trust in Jesus as their savior. As we leave this place, as we go about our business throughout the week, as we do whatever it is that we have to do, don't let us fall back, drift back into this fear of man, people's opinions, people's desires and wishes for us. But may Christ be at the center of every conversation we have, of every decision that we make, the way that we interact as a church family, Thank you for saving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.